Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Living in a pandemic is challenging, but what's it like living with a chronic disease in a pandemic? Today, we focus on Americans who have diabetes. Nationwide, that's one in 10, according to the CDC. One in three Americans are pre-diabetic. We find out more about what that means and ways to treat and prevent the disease. It's not as simple as saying, fix your diet or lose weight. There are different types of diabetes and multiple factors that contribute to the disease. Connecticut Public Radio reported on a recent state report that shows black and Latino residents are about twice as likely to be diagnosed with diabetes. We'll hear from doctors and others who work in communities like the predominantly Latino neighborhood of Fairhaven in New Haven, Connecticut. That's coming up. First, I want to welcome back to the show Nicole Leonard. She's healthcare reporter at Connecticut Public Radio. Nicole, how are you doing? Good, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So as I mentioned, Nicole, we're going to spend the hour uh, talking about diabetes, but I wanted to first start with a story you did recently, uh, looking at the experiences of some diabetics in the pandemic, and you profiled a Connecticut resident, Tom Dykus. Tell us about him. Yeah, Tom, um, Tom uh, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at seven years old, and so he's now um, over 30 years old. So he's been living most of his life with uh, type 1 diabetes, which is a specific kind of diabetes. Um, and he is an, he's become an advocate with the group Connecticut Insulin for All in um, helping change the way that, um, you know, accessibility and affordability to managing something like type 1 diabetes. When you say type 1, I also think of uh, it as juvenile diabetes. Some of our listeners probably are familiar with that, uh, where uh, people are diagnosed when, when they're children. And so he's been living with this for 32 years now. What has it been like in the pandemic uh, for him to treat his disease? Yeah, well, the pandemic has really, as we know, has disrupted a lot of things for many people. Um, that includes anybody really managing any type of chronic disease. And it certainly has um, affected people who are managing type 1 or type 2 or another kind of diabetes. And so for Tom, um, he was really uh, gearing up at the beginning of the year to get things like um, an insulin pump, which um, increases your accuracy in managing your blood sugar. Um, he had some other doctor's appointments lined up to, to really take care of his health care. And of course, um, a lot of that was delayed and some appointments were canceled and he hasn't gotten his pump yet. And of course, he's among um, a population in Connecticut that is struggling with employment right now because we're seeing very mm -hmm. high rates because of the pandemic. And of course, we know employment is very closely tied to health insurance coverage. So this pandemic has really thrown a wrench into to some people's plans and made it more difficult to manage um, diabetes or another chronic disease. So he was dealing with a seasonal layoff. And so thinking about finding a new job, as you mentioned, employment being tied to having health insurance, that must have been pretty stressful for him uh, because he's got this chronic condition. 
Absolutely. And it's not only just stressful, but, you know, when we think about what we desire in jobs, a lot of times uh, benefits and health insurance coverage are at the top of the list in, in, in addition to income. And so it's been very hard to find not only those positions, but really any positions, because there are so many people looking for jobs right now. So it, it has become a very stressful situation. Mm -hmm. That's what uh, Tom told Nicole in her story. Let's hear it. You know, there's a kind of a hold, a pause on things going on in the world right now. Your diabetes isn't on pause. That's always a 24-7, 365 career that you that you have to always be on top of and just find a way to, to get over these hurdles. We know that um, diabetes is one, one of the most chron common chronic diseases uh, in the country, if not the world, but also it can be costly to manage. Um, even if you have good insurance, it does, mm -hmm. it can cost a significant amount out of pocket um, to pay for all the different medications and services and other devices that you need. And so um, for Tom, who may not have employer-sponsored coverage, um, he is eligible for what's called the Medicaid program in Connecticut. It's for people lower income or if you don't have an income. And so he's been able to um, access that and been able to get things like uh, his medication of insulin, which is crucially important um, when you have type 1 diabetes. Um, and so he has been fortunate enough to access that uh, system in order to keep up with his medications. But of course, that's not, you know, the, the most desirable thing that he wants. He does want to have a steady income and in, in employer-sponsored plan to be able to manage his diabetes. As Sharon shared with us on Twitter, my husband has been a type 1 diabetic for 43 years, was required to take for safety to take time off for two and a half months this spring, and now his company is clawing back and contesting his unemployment. My husband's place of work won't enforce proper mask wearing standards other than posting signs, so he's very susceptible. But she also asked, what are we supposed to do if the last attempt at taking off at work has put a target on his back? And this is something that, you know, it may be the situation for others, uh, Nicole. It's a very precarious time uh, when you've got a chronic condition and you need employment as well. Yeah, and it is that dual thing, right, that the pandemic, the coronavirus does pose a higher risk to people with underlying medical conditions. That includes diabetes. Um, if you're successfully managing your diabetes and you have it um, in control, whatever type you have, um, you're less at risk. But certainly if you are struggling to afford your medications or to keep your blood sugar levels down, you are more at risk of contracting uh, coronavirus and becoming seriously ill from it. So there's this dual problem where um, people need to want to make an income. They want to keep their jobs, of course, and, and have that security of health insurance. But at the same time, they have to worry about keeping themselves safe. And that's put a lot of people with chronic diseases, including diabetes, in sort of precarious um, positions that they have to make, they unfortunately have to make decisions between their health care and um, making a way of life and, and affording, you know, their rent or their mortgage or food on the table and their health insurance. So what do we know, Nicole, nationally? I mentioned that statistic, one in 10 Americans have diabetes. But when we think about diabetes and other chronic uh, diseases uh, in our country, um, could you give us uh, kind of some data points here? 
Yeah, I mean, like you said, it's um, it's it's in the top ten of the most common chronic diseases. It's it's unfortunately also in the top ten of um, causes of death, both uh, in the United States and in Connecticut. Um, but of course, we know that one in ten. You know, there are so many people out there who are successfully managing uh, their type one or type two or gestational diabetes um, and are living very long lives. Um, but when I mentioned before the cost factor, one out of every seven healthcare dollars spent in the United States is on diabetes and, and some of the complications um, that may happen. That also happens in Connecticut where um, about 200, more than 275,000 adults in Connecticut have some type of diabetes. And that's only the adults. We know that there are a lot of children who um, are want diagnosed, uh, type one is very often diagnosed in childhood, but there are, there's a rising rate of, di of type two diagnoses in children. So that's certainly a cause for concern. Mm. Now coming up, we're gonna hear from healthcare providers in our state uh, who are helping uh, both children and adults uh, manage uh, diabetes. Uh, but Nicole, we've talked a little bit about type 1 diabetes. There's also type 2 diabetes. Can you break it down for us? Yeah, so um, this is where actually a lot of people have spoken to me. They wish there was more education about the different types of diabetes because diabetes tends to get lumped into just one category and everybody just sees it the same way, but there are different types. And um, so type one uh, does account for a smaller percentage of the overall number of people who have diabetes, um, but it's when the body, uh, specifically the pancreas organ, loses the ability to naturally produce insulin, which is a hormone that, that you're body needs to regulate your blood sugar. Um, and scientists don't exactly know for certain why some people develop this and why others don't. Um, there are some genetic and hereditary links, but um, they don't quite know yet why one person um, develops type 1. Um, type 2 accounts for the majority of diabetes cases in the United States. Um, it's when the pancreas doesn't produce enough insulin or that the body can correctly use the insulin that is produced. And so those that type 2 does have some genetic and hereditary factors, but it also, um, obesity is very largely linked to type two, there are also some environmental factors and uh, certainly socioeconomic factors that play into why somebody could be more at risk for developing type two. And each of those types um, have different um, treatment plans and different things that people uh, need to do to manage their diabetes. And a third one that also is a smaller percentage, but it does happen is gestational diabetes, mm -hmm. um, which happens to women in pregnancy. And gestational diabetes um, often goes away after the pregnancy is over. It certainly makes the pregnancy more high risk, but sometimes it doesn't go away. And then you realize that that, um, uh, that person may actually have type two diabetes. So we know that diabetes has become more common in recent years. Uh, something that you're working on, Nicole, is looking at diabetes as a silent epidemic. There is a lot of stigma attached to it. You spoke with someone named Emma. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, uh, Emma Heslin is, uh, she's a 22 year old, uh, very new. She just became a registered nurse. Um, but she, Emma was at, she was diagnosed with type one diabetes uh, in adolescence. So about a month before her 16th birthday. Um, her, her and her mom didn't really know anything about diabetes. Um, they sort of, they knew what it was more generally, but they didn't know the different types. They didn't really know what to expect. Um, and, and she became very hesitant once she was diagnosed to really share what she was going through with friends and family. She felt like she sort of had to keep it close to her chest. Mm, let's hear from Emma. I'm a very like private person. So when I was first diagnosed, I was like, okay, this is mine. And I think any diabetes diagnosis, it comes with shame. I felt ashamed, even though I didn't cause it. Um, I think there's so much stigma and I wasn't knowledgeable about it, so I couldn't expect others to be. So I kind of hit it, um, just did my thing. Mm. And so, Nicole, I know we think about how stigma impacts a patient's uh, mental health, but when you have a disease like diabetes, uh, stigma, does that impact how someone manages their diabetes? And, and that can be dangerous to their health as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've, I've spoken to a couple of folks where, um, you know, especially if you, you're you thinking about it in something, you just heard from Emma, right? She was, mm -hmm. she felt ashamed that she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And sometimes you do hear that from people, whether they're diagnosed with type 1 or type 2, and they become um, less likely to, you know, share their experiences with their family and friends. They may be less, they may be more hesitant to access some really supportive services. There are a lot of really great um, support groups. Of course, some of them have changed now because of the pandemic, but there are things that um, people can become involved in to find other people who are going through the same thing they are and to sort of find um, you know, a support network. But, you know, if you feel like this is something that um, you may even be in denial of, um, it's really hard to get to that point where you can succeed and thrive in um, your diagnosis. And there are, you know, Lucy, Lucy, there are many people who are, are succeeding and have found those support networks and have found sort of their voice and advocacy um, after their, their type, uh, their, their diagnosis. And um, unfortunately, that doesn't happen to everyone right away. Mm. Uh, because of the stigma, did you find it hard to find individuals here in our state, Nicole, that would want to talk to you because they had type 2 diabetes? And, and, and what did you find out when you reached out to them? Yeah, I, I actually did. I, I had a, a bit of a tough time um, finding people um, to talk about their type 2 diabetes. And I think because, you know, it is closely tied to obesity. And um, certainly we have this sort of, we have this culture that really shames people for um, for obesity when we know that obesity is caused by so many other things. Um, it has genetic links. There are socioeconomic factors as to why somebody may become obese or have excess weight. Um, and so, you know, it turns into this this blame game. People will either blame themselves or we have so many people blaming each other. And that's just, you know, that really weighs on people, especially if they have type one to be hesitant to say, yes, I have this because um, they fear that, you know, what will other people think of me or, um, you know, will I um, get blamed for this? And so, 
it was more difficult to find um, people with type 2 diabetes. But um, Lucy, I know that so many of us know wonderful people who have type 2 diabetes and, um, you know, our friends or families or neighbors. And, um, you know, it, it, I know that they have really good things to say about, you know, what their experiences have been and um, probably can help other people um, in terms of, um, you know, more support. But in order for that to happen, I think communities have to give more support, right? All all the rest of us um, need to show that we have more support for people with type 1 or type 2 diabetes. Mm. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With me today is WMPR healthcare reporter Nicole Leonard as we talk about diabetes, a chronic health disease that affects 1 in 10 Americans. Are you one of them? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You just heard from WMPR healthcare reporter Nicole Leonard as we talk about diabetes today. Diabetes and prediabetes affecting more than 100 million people in the U.S. Are you or someone you know diabetic? We want to hear from you this hour, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Nicole has reported on how the chronic disease affects Black and Latino residents disproportionately in our state. A recent report shows that they're about twice as likely to be diagnosed with diabetes than non-Hispanic whites. Black and Latino residents also have higher rates of diabetes hospitalization and mortality too. Joining us now to talk about how they're working to reduce these disparities in their community, Dr. Melissa Pensa is a clinical lead of health equity at the Fairhaven Community Health Center in New Haven, Connecticut. Dr. Pensa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lucy, for having me. Also with us is her colleague, Mari Montosa, a registered nurse, and she is the coordinator for the Diabetes Prevention Program at Fairhaven Community Health Center, Healthcare Center. Uh, Mari, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. So I'll start with you, Dr. Pensa. Tell us more about the patients that you serve in, in Fairhaven. Sure. So we serve about uh, 18,000 patients a year, um, and the majority are Hispanic, um, about um, 75% of our patients identify as Latino, and uh, about two-thirds of them prefer to have their health care delivered in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, we um, serve, the majority of our patients are below the poverty level, um, and we um, um, also see um, adults, children, all people in our clinic. So tell us about when we're talking about diabetes, um, how uh, this is an issue in Fairhaven. What what do you see each day? So um, just as you had reported with statistics, we see that at Fairhaven, so unlike the national average where 9% of um, patients nationally have diabetes, we actually see year to year either 15 or 20% of the patients receiving um, care at Fairhaven, adult patients have diabetes. Um, so um, it's, a, it's a huge problem um, in our community, um, and it's one of many comorbid conditions. So Nicole did a wonderful job talking about, um, you know, diabetes 
Um, and I think to add to that, um, diabetes is also a cardiovascular disease risk factor and often comes with, um, in addition to obesity, hypertension, um, hyperlipidemia, which is um, excess cholesterol, which we're often managing at once, um, also chronic kidney disease, all of these things tend to come together um, to impact our patients. Um, at Fairhaven, um, we, we see a lot of patients who have all of these conditions together. And not only that, they're um, often managing um, a complex life situation. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, majority of our patients are um, below the poverty level. Also, um, 25% of our patients are uninsured. Um, so um, they're trying to navigate these difficult to manage conditions um, in less than ideal circumstances. Mm. Uh, Mari, tell us about the the patients that you work with, the families you work with, uh, with these comorbidities and these uh, multiple uh, challenges that they're facing in their lives uh, uh, to care for people, to have access to quality food. I'm just wondering if you could give us more of a glimpse of some of the, the patients that you work with. Yeah, so, you know, I I do a combination of working with patients who have diabetes and also pre-diabetes, and um, this is for adults and children, Um, and we're seeing a a large number um, of of, of families, patients, especially during this time, um, who um, are having a a difficult time getting in and, um, you know, getting their care. And um, one of the things that, that we're doing here at Fairhaven is we are um, we offer a number of programs. Um, and one of the programs, well, two of the programs specifically um, for our at-risk population or patients who have pre-diabetes or, or, or early on um, diabetes are um, the Diabetes Prevention Program, which is a, a 16-week um, exercise and nutrition program that we offer um, not just to adults, but to families. Um, we like to take the family approach um, as this is a, a disease, again, that, that we see kind of progress um, through generations. Um, and we also have adapted um, the Bright Bodies Program, which was developed at Yale, um, who, that is a, a program for kids, um, kids and their families. And so these are um, some of the ways that we um, are helping support our, our population, along with um, one-on-one um, counseling visits, not with just providers, but with nurses here um, at the clinic as well. So, Mari and Dr. Pence, we got an uh, interesting question on Twitter. Uh, The person writes, I am Latinx. Both grandmothers and mother have type 2. I try to eat healthy, but am I destined to get it at some point anyway? How do you answer that question, Dr. Pence? Yeah, I mean, we definitely know that diabetes is a combination of genes and environment. And, um, you know, Nicole described type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and, and it's um, you know, I think type one is a little bit more genetic and type two is somewhat more environmental. Um, are you destined to get it? You know, that's really challenging to say. It's hard to take statistics and put it down to one individual. Um, but we do know that um, we, you can prevent diabetes. And even when given a diagnosis of diabetes, it is reversible. It never goes away. Um, but you can live a life with a normal glucose and no diabetes complications. Um, even when you have diabetes, just by controlling um, environment, and that is by eating well and and exercising. Amari Montosa, is that um, easier said than done in, in some ways? When I think about uh, the the 
uh, value and uh, the place that food um, holds in our lives, uh, whether we come from different cultures. Uh, my mother uh, was from India, and she was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in her 40s. But um, the traditional food that she would make, not exactly what you should be eating if you're diabetic. How do you have those conversations? Yeah, th those are those are hard conversations to have. Um, I think we all have our, our that, that food or those foods that um, that we love to eat, and and you know, kind of one of our approach. It's not that you can't eat those things. It's uh, it's all about eating in moderation, mm -hmm. um, and how how you can change what you eat just a little bit, just to make it a little healthier. Um, and so it, it is hard to have conversations and how do you introduce uh, new foods? And some people are, are more open to it than others. Um, and I think that it, it just takes, sometimes it, it just takes a little bit of time. Um, and, and again, one of the things with, with our programs are that, you know, they're groups and there are other people who are going through the same thing and that support. Um, and, and sometimes it, it, it just takes a little bit of time. Um, and, but, you know, it's, it's, it's all about I, portion control <laughs> um, is, is probably what's, what's the most important um, in, in talking to, to individuals, especially who, who love, <laughs> love to eat. I love to eat. <laughs> especially starchy food. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Mari, when I think about Fairhaven, again, this is a neighborhood in, in our, one of our cities, New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, we hear so often about food deserts and uh, not having access, certain neighborhoods not having access to good quality food. Income can be an issue. Uh, why is it that it's so easy to buy uh, cheap junk food? But if you really want to eat well, the way our food system is set up in this country, it's expensive at times. And so I'm wondering yes. if you can talk more about, you know, linking people uh, to uh, ways to get good quality food right it is it is it, it is expensive especially with transportation issues around here in the community it's you know we have our local um, grocery store along with a couple of you know corner stores where people do their their shopping um, you know it's it's talking to to again I think that one of the most important things is, is, is portion control. Yes, something might be a little bit more expensive, but we can eat a little bit less of it to have it last a little longer. Um, you know, in the community, we do have various programs, and especially during the, these times, um, some some support for those who are having difficulty with a, a, obtaining food. Um, and there are, you know, local community resources that, again, even pre pre-pandemic um, were, were available. Um, but it's, again, you know, if, if fresh is, is is too expensive, okay, let's think about maybe purchasing frozen foods um, that we can prepare in a healthy way um, as well. And it's just a, about giving different ideas. Um, I think we, we, we're kind of like on a one track and it's healthy food is expensive and how can we look beyond that? Again, uh, this is where we live as we talk about diabetes in our communities. Uh, with us on Zoom, Mari Montosa, registered nurse and diabetes prevention program coordinator at Fairhaven Community uh, Healthcare in New Haven. Dr. Melissa Pence is also with us. She's a clinical lead of health equity uh, at this uh, community health center. Uh, Dr. Pence, you know, we again stressed about uh, how uh, black and Latino residents are more likely to be uh, diagnosed with uh, diabetes. And if you could talk more about the multiple factors uh, that contribute to this? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I do think that um, in the terms of diabetes, there is you know, some literature to support that um, for certain um, immigrant groups coming from um, 
Central and South America that um, there is a potential hereditary component. But I think the majority of the disparities we see in diabetes is more likely due to the impacts of um, race and racism in that, um, you know, um, minority groups um, often are in the lower socioeconomic status, don't have the same opportunities to education um, or, or the same opportunities to live a healthy life. And um, you know, really what health equity is, is when everyone has the same opportunity um, to live a healthy life. And, um, you know, our patients here um, at Fairhaven, you know, as you mentioned, we are, we are a food desert. Um, we don't have as many um, safe places where people feel comfortable exercising. And especially during this pandemic, people are scared um, to leave their home environment. You know, it, it, people are scared for a variety of reasons, but um, we've seen it more in the pandemic that people really are um following the rules, which is great. We want that for, for COVID, but, um, you know, it, it does make it more challenging um, for people who have diabetes and, and you need to be exercising regularly. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go back to Nicole Leonard, who is the Connecticut Public Radio healthcare reporter. The same question that I asked uh, Dr. Pensa about what we know about diabetes affecting minorities at a higher rate. You also did some reporting out of Hartford and how uh, health clinics are working with the uh, black residents on who have this chronic disease. Nicole, what can you tell us? Yeah, um, and particularly at one of the community health centers uh, in um, Hartford, uh, Wheeler Health Clinic, um, where 80% of their patient population is identifies as either uh, Black or uh, Latino, and majority are Black. Um, you know, they talk about, as Dr. Pensa just mentioned, um, race and racism do play a part. You know, we have a history in this country where... Um, there's been all the way back hundreds of years of years of uh, medical maltreatment and, um, you know, illegal experimentation on, um, on people who are African-American and black. And so, you know, when you jump to all these years later, um, you know, some of that hasn't gone away. There is there is systemic racism in our country in the healthcare system. Um, there are things that um, generations have passed down this knowledge where it sometimes actually makes people hesitant to even access the healthcare system because they're afraid and and rightly so that they're not going to be treated um, correctly or the same or they're not going to get the healthcare that they need or that they're certainly um, not going to get something that's going to help them but hurt them. And so um, overcoming some of those things is what a lot of, um, there's a lot of community health workers in uh, cities and across the state that work very closely uh, with community groups to try and rebuild those bridges and ensure, you know, reassure people that, um, you know, they do need to access the healthcare system to uh, manage something like diabetes and that they will be taken care of, but that's easier said than done. I wanted to take a quick call before uh, Dr. Pensa has to leave us. Uh, Debbie's calling in from Middlebury. Debbie, you're on the show. Hi, Lucy, thanks for having this show. Can you hear me okay? Yep, go ahead, Debbie. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm the Live Well Regional Coordinator at the Western Connecticut Area Agency on Aging in Waterbury. And we are one of five agencies on aging in the state um, that offers free Live Well with Diabetes workshops. 
These are for people with type um, 2 um, diabetes. Um, in the past, they were done in person, but because of the pandemic, we're now doing them over the phone. So we have small groups of people between four and six with one trained leader, and all the materials are sent beforehand to the participants. And um, it's a self-management program. It's six weeks, just one hour a week. And we talk about um, what to eat, foot care, low and high blood sugar, um, tips for dealing with stress, how to set small and achievable goals. We do weekly action plans. And um, we'd encourage people to call their different agencies on aging in Connecticut. Um, They're in Bridgeport, Norwich, North Haven, Hartford, and Waterbury to learn more about these free workshops and um, to sign up for one. It's a great mm-hmm. way to um, connect. Um, also, well, at least in Waterbury, they're offered in both English and Spanish. Well, thank you, Debbie, uh, for those great resources uh, for our listeners. And we'll be sure to, to link to some of those uh, active aging organizations uh, to get those, uh, especially, especially those phone workshops uh, during COVID. I wanted to go back to Mario Montosa. Uh, tell us about how some of your programming uh, quickly has changed uh, in this pandemic. Right. So, so. Uh, Previously, they were in person in our local uh, middle school. Um, so now we are offering it via Zoom um, and also offering a free exercise app where we can also track um, the exercise that, that they are doing. Um, and the classes are and have always been done bilingual um, in Spanish and in English. Um, so it's been a, a, a little difficult with the with the transitioning and, and technology um, with some of the participants. but. Um, uh, we're, 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 we're doing it. Mm. Again, that's Mario Montosa, registered nurse and diabetes prevention program coordinator at Fairhaven Community Healthcare. Thank you, Mari, so much for talking with us. Thank you, Lucy. Also, thank you to Dr. Melissa Pensa, who's the clinical lead of health equity at the Fairhaven Community Healthcare. Dr. Pensa, thank you. Thank you. And thanks so much to Nicole Leonard, who is Connecticut Public Radio's healthcare reporter. We really look forward to more reporting from you about uh, diabetes in our community. Nicole, thank you. Thanks, Lucy. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, insulin is one of the most expensive liquids in the world. We talk more about that after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about diabetes this hour. Uh, Adam tweeted, type one diabetic for nine years, no family history. The first few months of the pandemic were hard, but just recently had my best three month period in eight years. Adam writes, if I didn't have Medicaid, I probably wouldn't be writing this right now. A continuous glucose monitor and insulin pump has been a lifesaver for him, literally. Now, my next guest is a pediatric endocrinologist who understands diabetes on a personal level. That's because she was diagnosed with type 1 or juvenile diabetes when she was just six years old. Dr. Laura Nally is a physician at Yale Pediatric Diabetes Center. Dr. Nally, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. 
So I, I mentioned a little earlier about insulin being so expensive. And so for someone who is diabetic and you help uh, patients uh, with uh, diabetes, how expensive per month is, is insulin? Well, the price of insulin has skyrocketed um, over the years. Uh, basically, in 1996, insulin only cost $21 per vial, and that same insulin has increased to cost $250 to $400 per vial today. Um, just to give you some perspective, uh, someone could require anywhere from two vials per month to, to five or six vials per month of insulin to live. So it's definitely become an issue. And we've actually, we actually know that research studies have shown that it only costs about $6 to produce a vial of insulin. Mm. So the cost has really gotten out of control. When we think about how expensive it is and the fact that so many people are struggling, especially with income, do you find a lot of diabetics like uh, Tom, who we heard about earlier, when they find that they're out of work, rationing uh, becomes common and how problematic that is when we think about treating uh, diabetes on a daily basis? Yeah, so I see primarily children with diabetes, but as many of their parents have lost their jobs, mm they've struggled with how to afford their medications and where to get their medications. So when someone has lost their job during the pandemic, if they lose access to health insurance, it makes it very difficult for them to figure out how to get insulin because the cost is prohibited. Um, I don't know anyone who can just afford to pay for it out of pocket. And then when you think about all the other diabetes supplies that go along with it, uh, people with diabetes who take insulin can require up to like 10 to 15 prescriptions. Um, and each of those costs money. So if you have an interruption in your health insurance, it's definitely, it could be devastating for a family. And we can see them making choices between paying for insulin and paying for food or their rent or, you know, rationing all sorts of things that, that they really need to survive. Mm. So there are three drug manufacturers that really uh, command uh, the market for, for producing insulin. And tell us more about, you know, the, just the efforts to control insulin costs. We know it's been a conversation nationally, and I think there's a, a law that will help Connecticut residents, hopefully in the near future. Yeah, so our group advocated to um, cap the out-of-pocket cost for co-pays for insulin. So this is not an insulin price cap, but this is a cap mm -hmm. on the co-pays for insulin for high deductible health plans. So essentially we work towards trying to improve that for a lot of families who have high deductible health plans and may end up spending thousands of dollars out of pocket at the beginning of the year as they meet their deductible and their out of pocket maximum. Um, now, there, there's, there's more room for advocacy, um, obviously, in order to solve this problem, we really need to lower the cost of insulin itself so that it can be more affordable for, for everyone um, and not just those who have insurance. Um, and so so there, there has been a lot of advocacy done. We're, we're working on trying to get um, those who don't have insurance to have to be able to access insulin without having to pay the full cost of insulin. There are certain programs available right now, like 340B, that will help the uninsured be able to obtain insulin for a low cost. However, those are um, some of the manufacturers are actually pulling out of the 340B program, making it more difficult for people to access the, the these programs and get insulin affordably. Mm. 
That's really frustrating when you think about the number of Americans who need this uh, medication. Uh, when we think about the advances in managing this disease, Dr. Nally, uh, we, again, we heard from Adam talking about his continuous glucose monitor and his insulin pump. Can you talk about the, those, uh, I guess, improvements in technology that help manage the care? But again, it, it feels like it's only accessible uh, to some. So, yeah, technology has really come a long way. Um, now we actually have insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors that you can wear. People don't necessarily have to do nearly as many finger sticks as they used to by wearing a continuous glucose monitor. Um, but they're not covered for everyone. So for most people with type 1 diabetes, we able to get coverage for a continuous glucose monitor. But for those with type 2, even if they take insulin and they have the exact same risk factors as someone with type 1 who can have a low blood sugar or a high blood sugar, um, insurance actually won't cover continuous glucose monitors for them. And it's, it's, it doesn't you know, sense from a medical perspective, and it's really unfair. Um, the out-of-pocket cost for these can be thousands of dollars a year, and that's also cost prohibitive for someone. And then you can also imagine that if you're feeling a lot of shame and stigma associated with your diagnosis, then you it's, it's hard for you to even manage yourself. Um, and so then to have another barrier on top of that being like insurance not covering these, these devices for people, I think is, is very difficult. Again, I'm talking with Dr. Laura Nally, physician at Yale Pediatric Diabetes Center. Dr. Nally, you mentioned that you work primarily with children. And so can you talk about what you're seeing uh, in your practice, uh, where the types of families that you're serving and where the needs are for them? Yeah, so the, a lot of families are having to make some tough decisions and sacrifices. Uh, some families have had to take leave from work to be home with their children because they're homeschooling and they have to help them take care of their diabetes as well. Um, I, I, we also know that, um, uh, that, that one in four people um, have rationed insulin due to cost. And that's a scary statistic. And I can only imagine that it's getting worse with the pandemic as people have lost their jobs. Um, and and I know that a lot of a lot of people are are definitely struggling with um, being able to call the insurance company, try to try to get all of these medications and devices covered for their children, which can take a lot of time as well. So um, the time commitment to like obtain these diabetes supplies has really gotten out of control. And I'm hearing a lot from families that, especially during the pandemic, the wait times are longer and, um, and the, their pump supplies and CGM supplies are sometimes getting delayed, um, meaning that they're having gaps in their care and they have to resort to managing their diabetes a different way that maybe they haven't done so in, in a really long time. So it can definitely be stressful. So what can be done locally to help these families, Dr. Nally? I mean, we so often look to our federal uh, delegation uh, to work on uh, these issues, but I'm wondering from your perspective, what you would like to see. Um, I would love for uh, for families to, to join in on advocacy. Um, I think that there are, I, I'm a part of one organization, T1 International, um, and I really, I really think that joining an advocacy group can help connect families with legislators who can help create legislation just like we did this past year that will help them. Basically, we just need to know what are the needs in the community and how can we help people and then we can bring those needs directly to the people who can make a difference. So I think getting involved in advocacy is a great way to try to make a difference and, um, and help not only 
you know, your own family, but the other families in the state of Connecticut who might not be able to, to share their, share their experiences. We talked earlier about the high cost of insulin, the fact that, you know, some of the the technology that um, helps uh, with managing the disease uh, is not accessible to everyone. And I was thinking if, you know, something happens to one of your devices and you're diabetic, and I think you'd mentioned this, it takes a, a long time to even get a replacement. And does insurance cover it? Yeah, so replacements are are tricky. So, um so, so when you wear a continuous glucose monitor, essentially it's taped on your skin. And you can imagine if you if you sweat too much or maybe you bump into something, it could potentially fall off. But insurance does not give you extras. Um, you basically have just enough to get through your month. So if something happens, which it does often, um, you end up having to call the manufacturer themselves to try to get a replacement. Now, you may be sitting on hold for 40 minutes at a time. That has definitely happened to me. Um, and you may or may not end up being able to get a replacement after talking to someone. And a lot of times you'll get transferred from one person to another um, and get a lot of runaround while you're just trying to get a replacement device for, you know, for your, but you need to survive and that's, that's helping you live. Um, and, and I think it's, it's just really sad that, um, that people have to go through so much in order to just get these necessary devices. We talked earlier about the different types of diabetes and uh, why uh, insulin is necessary. But I'm wondering if you could take a step for us, Dr. Nally, when we think about so many people that are rationing insulin, the fact that their bodies need insulin, explain that process and what happens when they don't get it daily. Yeah. So, um, so when you have type one diabetes, um, you basically need, you need insulin 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can't really go without it for very long. If you, um, for some people, if you were to stop taking insulin um, completely, you could maybe survive for a few days. Um, and then if you, if you don't take it, you'll actually end up developing diabetic ketoacidosis fairly rapidly and you could die. And this has definitely happened to people around the country who have had to ration their insulin because they haven't been able to afford health insurance or because they haven't been able to, uh, or they, they have found no way to afford the insulin. So, so just by going a few days without insulin, you could end up in the hospital. For me personally, um, when uh, I wear an insulin pump and that gives me a continuous supply of insulin, but it wears off in about three hours. So when my insulin pump has malfunctioned, um, but three hours later, I've actually been in the bathroom throwing up and no longer able to take care of myself um, and basically on the verge of going to the emergency room. So this isn't the type of disease that you can go a week without your medication and still be okay. This is really a type of disease that you need immediate access to, to the medication or you, you could potentially die. Mm. You know, in preparing for this show, Dr. Nally, I was learning more about uh, insulin, and one of the co-discoverers is at Fred Banting, um, who, again, they sold the patent, I believe, for a single dollar because uh, they knew that uh, insulin was a life-saving uh, drug that they uh, helped create. But this idea that it has skyrocketed to where it is today, it's really frustrating uh, to hear, but we appreciate you spending time with us to raise awareness about this issue. Dr. Nally, do we miss anything? <laughs> no, I think, I think we covered a lot. Thank you so much for having me.
Dr. Laura Nally, again, is a physician at Yale Pediatric Diabetes Center. Uh, Dr. Nally, we appreciate your time. Uh, today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our tech producer is uh, Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>